You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 11th of November 2022 on Monocle 24, The Globalist in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist. I'm Guy Delaunay. Coming up, Russia's army continues its retreat from the southern Ukrainian city of Kherson. But what awaits the advancing Ukrainian troops? Also ahead, no fun at the fair for the women and girls of Afghanistan as the Taliban imposes an amusement park ban on them. Afghanistan expert Stephanie Glinsky will tell us what's going on. Plus, Monocle's contributing editor Andrew Muller will take a closer look at some of the week's biggest talking points and we'll be hearing from Jonathan Price on becoming Prince Philip in the new series of The Crown. It was a challenge to humanise the man, the man that we all knew from, uh, from the newspapers as being a grumpy, irascible man who put his foot in it all the time. Nothing grumpy or irascible on The Globalist, live from London. Russian troops may have abandoned the city of Kherson, but that doesn't mean that Ukrainian forces are rushing in. Officials say they're concerned that retreating forces have created a city of death by planting booby traps and setting artillery on the opposite side of the Dnipro River. At the same time, life in Ukraine's capital Kiev is taking an uncomfortable turn with complete blackouts, a distinct possibility as winter starts to bite. While Natalia Gumenyuk is a Ukrainian journalist in Kiev, Welcome to The Globalist, Natalia. Um, let's start with Kherson. What's the situation there this morning? Um, so we know uh, which of the good news that in the area, according to the government, 41 villages had been liberated yesterday on Thursday, which is, as I said, good news because uh, there was not such a movement for the last half a year. Uh, if there were some of the villages liberated in that southern direction of the country, uh, there were maybe once one, two, three. So it shows the scale. However, it's still uh, some uh, distance from Herson. Uh, we know it's different. It's not like Russians are withdrawing. Uh, I'm talking to... Uh, to the colleagues from the journalists who are originally from Kherson, but now in exile, but have the families, the friends. And uh, there are still a lot of Russian militaries inside. Uh, it's not really obvious that they just left. They are there. Uh, the, for the last days, there is very poor connection in the city. There are a lot of shelling. But what is also disturbing that we have a few cases um, which had been confirmed, but also they were in the international you know, analytical reports that the Russian soldiers are dressing into the plain civilian clothes and getting into the uh, civilian flats and houses. When I talk to the lawyers who are, uh, you know, who was studying and knowing the international criminal um, 
law, they say that that could be uh, endangering civilians. That's not uh, allowed. But the concern is that they are preparing either to guerrilla fight at, mm. at the city or maybe, you know, to show as if the residents of Kherson, you know, the Ukrainians are like, uh, would rebel the Ukrainian army, which quite a new tactic. I said, like, it's still a probability. This is an interesting tactic, as you say, if it is indeed borne out. Are we then thinking that the performance around the Russian decision to withdraw, where we had this televised decision, we're thinking that that is a performance, that it's some sort of trap being laid for the advancing Ukrainian forces? Uh, So there is an element of the trap in there still, you know, but... I, why I say the elements? When I was talking to the Ukrainian military expert a month ago, they were quite sure it's a trap when they given the sign. I think the Russian understood after some time that the Ukrainians are aware and won't get there just easy, you know, won't believe. So they're setting something bigger. At the same time, the, the fighting going on, and it's not like that they are just withdrawing all of a sudden. So it's under the pressure. So it's both. I think that um, I'd guess, uh, not being a military analyst, that it's something in between that they need to withdraw because Ukrainian army is fighting and putting a lot of pressure on them. But they are trying to make as much damage as possible. And that's one of the tactics to both withdraw, but also to create as many problems and as possible on the way, maybe make it more more difficult for the Ukrainian army as well. There's also this element of artillery parked on the other side of the river. And this is presumably something, again, which is going into the calculations that the Ukrainian forces are making. By entering the city, are we actually putting the city at risk? So the artillery... Uh, you know, the the uh, it was expected, uh, even if it was a perfect operation or the perfect plan for the Ukrainian army and for the Ukrainian state, there would be still uh, heavy artillery shelling from wherever the Russians are staying. So, you know, the closer they are, they are shelling deeper into the Ukrainian-controlled territory. So just tonight, another residential building where people lived, five-store building, has been shelled and heavily destroyed. People die in Mykolaiv, which is the second biggest town uh, never occupied, but in the south of Ukraine. So yes, of course, the uh, regaining of the city, the liberation of the city, it's always brings the people you know, at, at risk because, uh, you know, if there is an actual battlefield for a week, it can be the hardest week in the course of the war. However, you know, the life in the occupation was difficult. So any liberation comes with some of the price. But what we understand, it's important to remember that the occupation itself has a very heavy toll on the civilians with persecutions, with arrest, with people detained, but also with all the economic and other challenges. Um, so yes, there are concern and the reasons that, of course, if Russians withdraw to the uh, left uh, bank of the Dnipro River, which separates both Ukraine, but mm. also the Kherson region, that could be the thing. But Ukrainians never really were hoping to, for instance, free or liberate the left bank of a Kherson region from that distance. It's clear that somehow it should be, you know, 
taken from the northern part of Ukraine. So it just because of the geographical terrain, the only way to do that. Yeah, as we said, you're in Kiev at the moment. And, and as we've been looking on from afar at Kiev, from wherever we are in the rest of Europe, we've been seeing how life there has been swinging in some ways between extremes, from normality to bombardment, back to some degree of normality again. Now it seems like things are, are swinging perhaps back the other way, just as the uh, winter is going to start biting. People are, of course, adjusting, and Kiev is a major Ukrainian town with uh, millions of people living. Uh, indeed, a lot of came back, and the autumn, st- you know, working seasons, uh, school season started. And yeah, from October, Kiev experienced the very targeted attack on the infrastructure. To be more precise and particularly on the major electricity power station. So it's under immense, immense pressure. There are days when it was shelled and shelled and shelled. So there are planned uh, blackouts. Um, What does it mean? It means that, of course, the city government tries to keep, uh, you know, rescue service, hospitals, schools, railway, everything essential without blackouts while the rest of the city, you know, mainly residential buildings, may suffer with a planned blackout sometimes for four hours per day, sometimes in some districts for 12 hours per day with some break, uh, with some breaks. Uh, depending on the system, how it is, sometimes in my flat, when there is no, uh, there is no uh, electricity, which basically can, ha- can be every day for four hours, it can be that, you know, there is no internet, there is no... Um, you know, elevator is not going, but at least I have water. In some places, they won't have water because, you know, there is no pumps working. So it's 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 really tough. Does this mean, Natalia, though, that, that will people again be thinking about, well, I might be better off out of Kiev during the winter? Or will we see people leaving Ukraine again as we did before? I think that there is more, there was the even the call of the government to say, if it's possible, you can. There are some people considering getting out to the, you know, suburbs and private houses because you have the independent heating there, which is the, the we're still not in the harshest part of the winter. Uh, it's rather than people thinking where you would rather send, for instance, your elderly or your kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are schools. It's different. It's it's not like, you know, like in March when it was unpredictable, you didn't know what to do, you'll just send. Now it's more like well thought. But would, where, where would be there the school, you know? Um, so it's more for a couple of months, but there is a consideration. Yet, unless it's, uh, you know, total blackout, uh, which we hope won't happen, people are most of all, first of all, trying to find their way you know how to leave and consider because it's also very hard to guess we know we have the towns in the western ukraine where maybe they are not so prominent but where there are important power stations and they are sometimes also you know shelled so it's not really an absolute guarantee that things might work out elsewhere of course there are 
areas in the western Ukraine which looks like absolutely safe. But it's about the pressure on the uh, you know civilian infrastructure, which I should remind is also can amount for a war crime uh, because it's indispensable infrastructure. It's a clear target on the civilian uh, population. There is no argument that oh, if sometimes military can use it, it's clearly it can be according to international law also a war crime itself. It doesn't look that obvious, but it's all the time targeted uh, targeted uh, attacks on, on, on the power grids. Thank you very much for all those updates, Natalia. That's Natalia Gumenyuk uh, joining us from Kiev on Monocle 24. And this is The Globalist on Monocle 24. In about one second, and that's about right now, it'll be 7.12 in the morning here in London. Now let's head to Bali, because Vladimir Putin hasn't been making too many foreign trips over the past few years, and it seems that even those golden beaches of Bali aren't going to tempt him to next week's G20 summit. That means there's no chance of an actual physical meeting between the presidents of Russia and the United States, though Putin's people have dangled the possibility that he might attend virtually. Two of the European Union's big cheeses will be there, but it seems that Commission President Ursula von der Leyen has no desire to share a plate of nasi goreng with her counterpart at the Commission, Charles Michel. The word in Brussels is that their people have been told to keep the pair apart whenever feasible. While Suzanne Lynch is the chief Brussels correspondent for Politico, welcome back to The Globalist, Suzanne. Um, I do want to tuck into this nasi goreng with uh, Charles Michel and uh, Ursula von der Leyen, but uh, first of all, we should start with uh, Vladimir Putin. His absence, I suppose, does solve one problem at least, whether Western leaders are going to boycott or not. That is that is true. I mean, this was always a challenge for the Indonesian presidency of the G20 and um, what to do about the Putin problem. Um, there were calls, of course, for Putin to be uninvited. Zelensky, after a call with the Indonesian president, had said that he would not attend, albeit vir- virtually, if Vladimir Putin was attending. So th- it, there was always a tricky balancing act uh, for Indonesia. Also, of course, some countries like China, namely, um, have been wanting to stay, quote unquote, neutral um, and didn't want to see seem to be punishing Russia uh, in any way. So this allows, I think, everyone uh, to keep uh, happy on this situation. Russia is not coming and yet they have not been expelled as such. Um, And I think in, in a way. Um, that makes things easier for a lot of people around the table and allows those kind of other meetings uh, to continue as planned. Do we miss out in a way, though, because there was presumably a chance that at least on the sidelines that the Biden and Putin could have met and and had a meaningful conversation? There Possibly there, there would have been, but I think the issue is that um, I think if there's going to be any kind of negotiation there between Biden and Putin, it would have to be very much... Um, with Ukraine and um, with Ukraine's blessing, etc. So the idea of uh, this taking place when, uh, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in one sense, neutral territory, but in the realm of the G20, when, G- when Ukraine is not there physically, um, would have been an issue. Also, I think you would have had the problem that other leaders, it's not just Biden, but we're going to have Macron, Rishi Sunak, uh, Olaf Scholz, the Chancellor of Germany. What would those leaders have done? Um, so I think it would have been too complex and I don't think it would have been the place for this possible, probable conversation to have taken place. I wonder if uh, Jokowi, this is uh, the president of Indonesia, Jokowi Dodo, he will be presumably maybe a little bit uh, chagrined that he's not going to get the chance uh, to do the sort of arms around the shoulder photo op uh, with Biden and Putin that he may have been dreaming of. 
That's true, but I think he is in a tricky situation because, you know, Indonesia, his own country, has a lot of Chinese investment. It, it wants to, um, it's got a balancing act here. Um, it sees it's at a huge uh, country uh, in Southeast Asia. Uh, it is a, it's doing quite well economically, um, but it wants to keep China uh, to varying degrees happy. So um, I think in a way um, he may be relieved that he doesn't have to seem to be making a choice really on the Russian issue, that they want to remain neutral. They don't want to take, make a call on what's happening um, with their war in Ukraine. So in one sense, it may be um, an easier outcome um, for him, even though, as you say, yes, it won't have the same headlines. But I'm sure there'll be plenty of other ones uh, that we, he will be able to tout uh, after the G20 next week. And quite apart from anything else, Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister of Russia, will be there. And, you know, we know that he is, I, I don't know, we could po- possibly say uh, Putin's right-hand man, but he's certainly a, a trusted official of Putin's. So will there be a case that he's been maybe deputed to say something on Putin's behalf or to negotiate on Putin's behalf? Possibly. And I think the um, the an example here would be the UN General Assembly back in September. Lavrov attended the UN uh, in September at the big high level meeting there. And it was quite interesting during the week. I was covering it at the time to watch who he was meeting. So, you know, you had several um, ministers from uh, African countries meeting mm. him, for example. Uh, the Chinese met him. So, you know, I think we will see a similar uh, similar situation in Bali. Um, I think it'll be very, very interesting to see who wants to sit down around the table with Lavrov. I think it's going to say a lot about where some other countries in the world see this war in Ukraine and very much maybe see it as a Western war uh, and not something that countries in the so-called global south see as something that they are or should be involved in. Now, an interesting point of view of, of, for, for, for me on this this whole malarkey surrounding Charles Michel and Ursula von der Leyen that we've just uh, been talking about in the introduction is uh, that the EU has been putting, say, for example, Serbia and Kosovo under heavy manners to get their act together and stop mucking about with their piffling little disputes while there's an actual war on in Europe. And yet it seems that the um, two senior officials in Brussels, the presidents of the of the Commission and the Council, can't stand the sight of each other. Uh, what, what on earth are they playing at? Yes, I've been, I was researching um, this piece for a long time that I was, I was work, I, I published this week, but basically relations have broken down very much between the head of the Commission and the head of the European Council. Now, in one way, it kind of captures the dysfunction or the, the complexity of the EU system, that you have these numerous presidents. And the old question that Henry Kissinger seemingly posed, which was, who do you call when you call Europe? Mm. That's still a problem because you have these people with a pre- president in their title. So there's always been a kind of an inbuilt structural tension to the relationship. But things got very bad after a sofa gate, people might remember, um, that uh, there was a, an issue whereby they visited both visited Turkey and uh, when they met uh, President Erdogan, there was only one seat right. to sit in. And Charles Michel, the head of the European Council, sat in that seat. And Ursula von der Leyen was left standing and eventually had to take a sofa uh, nearby across from the foreign minister. Um, that was a really bad PR disaster for the EU and for mm. Michel in particular. But things have gone downhill since then. So um, I've been told that basically at the G20, for example, there are the people uh, involved with organising the trip have been told to keep separate itineraries. Um, There are very few meetings between the two now. Um, And most uh, seriously, I think, for the G20 is that Charles Michel is expecting a meeting with President Xi of China, Xi Jinping of China, 
And it now turns out that Ursula von der Leyen, during the last G7 in Germany in June, um, didn't invite Michelle to her, her meeting with Modi, uh, the Indian leader. Michelle is now annoyed at that. So now the invitation has not been extended to Ursula von der Leyen to attend the G meeting. Now, this kind of thing is very bad for the EU. Mm. It suggests division. Um, and, you know, interlocutors who the EU deal with all the time, the Indian officials, the Chinese officials know that this is going on because they're in contact with both cabinets, as they call both yep. uh, sets of staff. So it is a problem now for the EU externally as well as internally. I'm just thinking today, I mean, Joseph Borrell's due to meet the uh, president of Serbia and the prime minister of Kosovo, bang their heads together and say, stop mucking about with your licensed plate dispute, which has been dragging on for ages and causing tension in the region. They can just turn around and say, why should we listen to you? Your own two senior officials can't get along. They won't share a plate of nasi goreng together. It's true. I mean, one might argue that maybe, you know, there aren't. How how much is it stopping progress in the EU? That's the argument I got from some people. Well, you know, they're still doing their jobs. and The EU is still functioning. However, even though there are two different institutions doing two different things, they are supposed to be on the same page. So when the European Commission announces something on, say, for example, energy prices, the EU member states, the Charles Michel chairs, are, have to sign off on it. Sometimes una- unanimity is needed for those decisions. So the idea that they're not speaking to each other informally is a recipe for disaster. That's the way politics works. For example, in coalition governments all around the world, you have, you have parties who maybe are ideologically different and leaders who don't get on personally, but they have to work together if they're in coalition government. So it's that kind of analogy as well, which I think shows that how... Uh, damaging uh, it can be for internal processes in terms of how a system works, as well as the reputation, as you point out, is very hard to lecture and take the moral high ground to other countries uh, when you yourselves are not able to sort out your personal differences and work constructively together. Well, thanks for joining us, Suzanne. That's Suzanne Lynch of Politico, and I do recommend reading Suzanne's article on all the shenanigans between Charles Michel and Ursula von der Leyen on the Politico website. Still to come, the business headlines, the newspaper review from Zurich, and Andrew Muller will be taking a closer look at this week's weird and wonderful news stories. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. It's 10.22 in the morning in Istanbul, 7.22 here in London. As far as Afghanistan's women and girls are concerned, amusement parks have become an unfair ground. That's after the authorities banned them from entering such facilities in the capital, Kabul. It's just the latest indication of the deterioration of women's rights since the Taliban takeover. The Ministry for the Prevention of Vice and the Promotion of Virtue, and yes, that is an actual thing, says the ban on fun at the fair is to prevent the mixing of men and women. I'm joined now by Stephanie Glinsky, an Istanbul-based journalist who lived in Afghanistan for four years. Uh, Stephanie, welcome to The Globalist. All of this with the amusement parks, the fairgrounds, brings to mind that, that image that we had last year of Taliban members on pedalos that went viral on social media. Is this the sort of place we're talking about? Exactly the kind of place we're talking about. And that's exactly what we see when the Taliban came into Kabul last year, last August. 
Um, we had a lot of the fighters going to amusement parks, going to other parks in the city, mingling with the people who are living in the city, um, trying out all the various things um, and fun activities. And those are exactly these parks that are now banned to women in Afghanistan. I know a lot of people will be thinking, oh, yes, this is a, a trivial matter, but I, I recall the words of Harris Pasevich, the, the, the playwright and director from Sarajevo, who when he was asked, why are you staging um, a theatre festival during the siege? He says, why a siege during the theatre festival? I mean, it's always important for people to have these, um, these release valves, these places for enjoyment and laughter, no matter what else is going on in their countries. Exactly. And um, what we've seen over the past year, of course, is that women's rights have already been significantly decreasing. We've seen schoolgirls, grade 7 and up, not allowed an education anymore. We've seen women's rights on, um, yeah, going on buses, traveling, been um, taken away from them. And then the most recent thing, the parks, of course. And um, it came a bit of a surprise for, for most people in a way because parks had already been separated by gender. So the parks were um, segregated into two sides, one for women, one for men. This is something the Taliban had already introduced several months ago. Um, and what a lot of the park managers actually intentionally did was giving the bigger spaces and the nicer spaces of these parks to women, saying that women otherwise have no other places to go in Kabul, in other cities in Afghanistan as well. Um, and members of the Taliban had previously already been complaining about that, approaching these park managers saying, why do women get the bigger spaces, the nicer spaces? Um, and that was a bit of a pushback um, from these park managers saying, well, um, there needs to be a space, spaces for women to, to be together. Um, and on my last visit to one of the parks in Kabul in the Afghan capital, um, I went to the women's side of the park. And um, while you have the, the men's side exclusively being men only. You had a lot of male guards actually on the women's side checking on women's hijabs, so on the way women were dressing, approaching them if they didn't consider it appropriate. Um, so already um, this was not a free space for women to mm. be in in the first place. Um, now it's been taken away completely. And why, why is this happening now? Why this complete ban? So the rules are certainly not supported by the Taliban as an entity. I mean, that in itself doesn't really exist. There are different factions, some of them more conservative, others not. Um, some of them pushing for a variety of rules and regulations, such as bans on education, on traveling, and on, on going to parks, essentially going outside for women. Um, there are there are members within the Taliban who do not support this, of course, um, but these divisions within the group are are still um, very strong and they've caused, of course, frictions within the group. And right now it, it has been clear that those who are supporting the more conservative values have been the ones pushing um, and actually able to, yeah, to go through with these kind of rules. I'm trying to find a chink of light in this, Stephanie, because, you know, I don't want to make light of it with the talk about amusement parks and, and you know, the, the fun being banned. But this does reflect, as you said, the broader picture, which is a systematic attack on the rights of women and girls. It's interesting that you mentioned these factions or these voices within the Taliban who are saying we shouldn't be cracking down in such a way. Is there any chance that those voices might eventually be heard or might eventually rise to uh, more influence? influential positions? So 
I don't see this, and not just me, but many Afghan women I've been spoken, speaking to um, Afghans who are still living inside in, in Afghanistan right now, don't really see this happening as of right now. Of course, there's there's been hope from 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 the start when the Taliban came into Kabul on August 15th last year, um, with many people saying, well, maybe they are not the same as before. Well, what we've seen in the past year is that they actually are. They are they are cracking down. Um, the sa- in the same way they did in the 90s. Um, so most of the Afghan women I've been speaking to say they they don't actually see hope, and it's sad to say. And um, all the Afghan women I've been speaking to say they do not want to be in Afghanistan because they don't see a future. Their jobs have been taken away in many of the governmental ministries. Um, they've been essentially confined to their homes. Um, and for them to continue raising their children, raising daughters who can't go to school, um, this has become increasingly difficult, if not impossible. And women do continue to tell me that there really is no future for Afghan women in Afghanistan right now. And yes, this is very sad and it's a very, very bleak image. Mm. Um, but that's that's the reality on the ground. Desperately sad. And, and also sad when talking about the lives of children in Afghanistan, we've just received reports over the past couple of days that um, British forces have paid compensation for the deaths of 64 children uh, during their operations in Afghanistan between 2006 and 2014. That's four times as many deaths of children as the British forces had previously reported. Yes, indeed. And of course, um, in the past 20 years, there have been over... 47,000 civilian casualties that have been recorded. I mean, deaths perpetrated by all sides of the war, of course. We're talking U.S., NATO allies, the Afghan government, and the Taliban. Um, But these estimates um, are, well, well, they're estimates at best, and the real numbers are thought to be much higher still. So so the report on the the civilian casualties, these children, is not surprising. Um, Down in Helmand, where the, the British Army and the British forces were stationed, um, most of the families I've spoken to is that they have they have been affected by the war. They've lost family members. I've been to entire villages that have been raised to the ground. Um, the last time I was there, which was probably just just over half a year ago, people were sorting through empty rocket shells um, that their villages had been bombed with. So Helmand has been completely devastated by the last 20 years of foreign invasion. And um, what people will say now is that they are they're starting to rebuild. Um, they're starting to rebuild their houses, their lives. Um, and it's been incredibly devastating for, for Afghans, not just in Helmand, of course, throughout the entire country. Um, and while people might say that they're happy that the fighting has decreased in a way, of course, there's there's no active war going on as of right now. Sadly, at the same time, we're seeing, of course, very high levels of food insecurity, of um, an economic crisis, and then this new Taliban regime that we've just discussed, where um, women's rights are limited and the future of Afghanistan might be just as tough as it has been in the last 20 years. It's all fairly grim, Stephanie, but thank you very much for giving that perspective on it. Stephanie Glimsky there, and now here's a recap of the day's main stories. 
Ukrainian army says it's made major gains near Kherson after Russia said it was withdrawing from the southern city. However, Ukraine says it's proceeding with caution because it doesn't know the extent of the Russian retreat. The former US president, Donald Trump, has called Florida's Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, an average politician. DeSantis is seen as a rising star in the grand old party and a clear challenger to Donald Trump should the pair run for the US presidency. And the UK's former chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, has said he warned the former prime minister, Liz Truss, that her economic plans were proceeding too quickly. It's the first time that Mr Kwarteng has spoken publicly since leaving office. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Now, as this week drags itself towards the finish line, we turn to Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, to find out what we did or didn't learn over the past seven days. We learned this week what might be the purest distillation to date of the Tao of Donald Trump, perhaps slightly more former and slightly less future president of the United States than he was seven days ago. Well, I think if they win, I should get all the credit. And if they lose, I should not be blamed at all, Okay. The big goose was speaking shortly before Tuesday's US midterm elections, which notably failed to conjure what Trump's Republican Party had anticipated as a red wave. And turned out to be more a sort of purple trickle verging, perhaps, on a gurgle. We have not learned, as of this recording, what the final shakeout of the new US Congress will be, but we might have learned, or perhaps just choose to believe, sue us, where crazy optimists with an irrepressible faith in the good sense and common decency of the American people, that the Republican Party's interest in swivel-eyed ding-battery has peaked. Hooray? Or perhaps not. For we learned that while Donald Trump's aspirations of a waddle back to Washington may have taken a step or two backwards, a march might have been stolen by Trump's fellow Floridian, the freshly and thumpingly re-elected governor of the and finally state, this guy. To the woke mob, Florida is where woke goes to die. Woke. Whatever that even is, going to Florida to die, along with the grandparents of Midwesterners and the dignity of divorced dads in floral shirts. We fight the woke in the legislature. We fight the woke in the schools. We fight the woke in the corporations. We will never, ever surrender to the woke mob. We learned in some that we should probably accustom ourselves to the possibility of Cletus Churchill here running for actual president. Oh no. So we learned that perhaps the United States has not completely extricated itself from, if you will, the fevered, fervid, steaming, seething, boiling, roiling, populist. And then they have cans of soup. Soup. We did learn, however, that amid these midterms, the state of Tennessee had, after what has clearly been a long and thorough deliberation, voted to abolish slavery. (coughs) 
We further learned when we read into it a bit that what had actually happened was that four states, Tennessee, Vermont, Oregon and Alabama, had voted to close constitutional loopholes which still theoretically permitted involuntary servitude for convicted prisoners, which does actually seem pretty reasonable. Yeah. So we learned once again that there's nothing quite like bothering to read the story to remove all the fun to be had from jeering sanctimoniously on the basis of a clickbaity headline. And we also learned that, at any rate, nothing we could possibly conclude or suggest in response to these midterms could ever compete with the razor-sharp political analysis furnished by Fox News. When it comes to the state of Pennsylvania, why did Dr. Oz lose? Well, it looks like, according to uh, the exit polling, it's because Fetterman won. Elsewhere. We learned that these people had, incredibly, found a way to become even more annoying. Actually, we can't put our listeners through too much more of this. Do we have a sound effect evoking a piano falling from an overflying cargo aircraft with, you know, a certain amount of ominous whistling building steadily in volume before landing with a resonant crash of wood and ivory on a woefully, indeed willfully inept brass band? Much better. Reduced to merciful silence there were the so-called England Band, an indefatigable mob of attention-seeking bores who have been plaguing England football games with their dismal parping and inane honking for some years now. We learned this week that not only were they planning to attend the World Cup in Qatar later this month... No, don't. ...but that they had been enlisted as PSYOPs agents by the hosts... We learned that members of the England band were among several hundred fans from more than 30 nations recruited by Qatar as clandestine boosters of their event to make favourable social media postings about Qatar in return for free flights and hotels and 60 quid a day in spending money. We learned, therefore, that at least where their outreach to the UK was concerned, Qatar's PR people would appear to have misjudged grievously their choice of undercover influences. Though if they are listening, and why would they not be, they can yet turn this around and in so doing earn the eternal warm feelings of a grateful British people by incarcerating the England band indefinitely on the type of dubious trumped-up charges of which repressive petrostates are famously fond. And staying in the United Kingdom, we learned, not for the first time, that the Scots are not having any nonsense. For we learned the result of a public consultation to decide a name for a new museum in the city of Perth. In more insufferably whimsical jurisdictions, it is depressingly easy to imagine how this could have ended, with some local dignitary being eventually compelled to unveil a plaque inaugurating Museumy McMuseum Face or similar. Not in Scotland, we learned, and especially not in Perth. No, we learned that Perth's museum, when it opens in 2024, will be known as... 
Perth Museum. They don't ever catch on. Not sure if I got it. Just rewrite it. We've learned basically something of the value of not overthinking things. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. And that was indeed Andrew Muller there. You're with Monocle 24. And you're listening to The Globalist. It is 8.39 in the morning in Zurich, 7.39 here in London. Let's continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me from our headquarters in Zurich is the travel, culture and sustainability writer, Noel Salmi. Welcome back to The Globalist, Noel. And uh, let's talk first of all about The New York Times. As you'd expect, they're full of information about the midterm elections where the Democrats, I don't want, don't, are we calling it a hammering? They certainly, did, things didn't go quite as well for for them there as they might have been expecting. Well, right. Uh, as we know, and as Andrew said, uh, it wasn't a Republican red wave, and the D- Democrats did do much better in the midterm elections than expected, except in the state of New York. There, four Democratic seats for Congress flipped to Republicans. So in an interview yesterday with the New York Times, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, also who also goes by AOC... Sure, I, I always think of Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain when people say AOC, but I'm a <laughs> Liverpool supporter. Right. Well, so let's call her AOC. Okay, well, let's call her You can call her AOC, it's fine. So she easily won her own re-election, but uh, she did reflect uh, in this interview on what went wrong in the state of New York. And she criticized the failure of the New York Democratic Party to work with progressives like herself and to focus solely on supporting so-called moderate Democrats, Mm. which she says does not energize the voting base. Well, to take the man to take the Mandy Rice Davis approach, she, she would say that, wouldn't she? <laughs> well, she certainly would, and uh, you know it's sort of an ongoing issue within the Democratic Party, um, specifically in New York. There is the issue of Governor Andrew Cuomo, who mm. resigned last year after a series of allegations about misconduct, sexual misconduct. But she also critiqued the uh, old school approach of the New York State Democratic Party itself, which she says was not small D democratic. She said uh, it's based on big money and old school calcified machine style politics that create an anemic voting base that is not that is disengaged Mm. and disenfranchised. Uh, So. She said that by trying to fight Republicans on their own narratives like crime and safety, Democrats don't really have anything new to offer voters. Uh, Rather than simply trying to scaremonger uh, folks about a Republican victory, she said it's also important to lay down a vision and be unafraid Mm. about what we would do with power. And she contrasted the state of New York with the progressive state of California that puts things like public banking on the ballot. She says these are bills that are profoundly motivating. So in Ocasio-Cortez's opinion, it's time to either reform the New York State Democratic Party or, if it refuses to be reformed, to rebuild and replace. I I do wonder, looking from over the Atlantic as as we do at the moment, or certainly I do, it's... It's very tempting to see, to view the East and West Coasts as being these progressive areas of the United States and the bit in the middle as the the, the kind of uh, Trumpy... Uh, voting sort of areas of uh, of the Midwest and the the, the Deep South and all the rest of it. But are we in danger of viewing New York State 
uh, as a bit of a monolith here. The, the, clearly, there's a lot of old money knocking around there, and uh, there's probably a lot of left-behind type people there as well who who might be rather cheesed off with uh, the likes of AOC banging a progressive drum and not addressing what they would consider to be their real concerns. Um, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, New York State really is a little sliver down south of New York, uh, Manhattan, uh, you know, New York City and Long Island. And then you go up north and it's it's a whole different state with a lot more conservative uh, values. So, uh, yes, it's a real it's a real concern in California. You really have sort of the um, you've sort of got the middle. You've got the the farming areas, but uh, you've got a really big Democratic block around Los Angeles and San Francisco. So it could be, in, in, in this case, that these seats were always going to flip, regardless of what, and this goes back to the old Mandy Rice Davis uh, quote, you know, AOC obviously has her agenda, and fair play, she's going to push it. Uh, but it, it could well be it's the midterms, and this was always likely to happen. Yeah, this is true, but uh, but she does have a good point that whatever the Democrats did, it didn't work. So mm. perhaps it is time to try something new. Indeed. And uh, let's uh, go to Spain now. I'm, I'm, you, you have a wonderfully cosmopolitan uh, roundup here, uh, Noel. Uh, we're going to El Pais in Spain now. And their story that you wanted to feature is, is on the visit by the new Colombian president, Gustavo Petro, because there's this peace forum going on in, in Paris at the moment. So he's been having a chinwag with Emmanuel Macron. And not about Colombia, not about France, but about Venezuela and, and how relations and indeed the entire country could be normalized once more. Um, yes, that's right. So Gustavo Petro uh, has been president of Colombia for about three months now. Uh, and uh, his first sort of international visit uh, in Europe was to visit with French President Emmanuel Macron yesterday in Paris. Um, and they are concerned about bringing democratic elections to Venezuela. Um, so... Colombia hasn't not only has this issue of Venezuela that's got it's uh, it's been getting numerous migrants over the last decade. Um, Seven million Venezuelans have left the country Mm. um, during its crisis. But there's another urgent issue for Colombia, which is the status of its border, where armed groups have created a no man's land. uh, And these groups have the sort of tacit support of uh, Venezuela's president. Nicolas Maduro. Gustavo Petro did visit Maduro and assured him he intends to maintain friendly relations, but he would like to see some changes there. Um, so Petro hopes to re-engage Europe's attention on Venezuela and to uh, and to push Maduro to mm-hmm. engage in dialogue with the Venezuelan opposition groups in Mexico. Uh, <laughs> the goal Gosh. would be... Yes, the goal would be to eventually hold internationally supervised presidential elections in Venezuela in 2024. And indeed, Macron spoke directly with Maduro about this uh, at COP27 in Egypt earlier this week. I do think that it's clearly a sign that Emmanuel Macron is looking for some sort of big foreign policy win. He's been trying on my patch in the Balkans. He's obviously clearly now trying um, in, 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 in the Americas as well. Oh, yes, that's very true. He He's always on the lookout for a good foreign policy opportunity. He hasn't done too well so far, I don't think, has he? Am I missing something? Uh, yeah, no, there's not one that pops to mind immediately. <laughs> Bless him. He'll keep on trying. I guess he's got another few years in which to uh, try and get that big foreign policy win, and we will keep an eye on that one. Um, meanwhile, let's go to uh, Switzerland. Well, there you are in Zurich, of course. Uh, with I'm trying to read the Gothic script on this. Neue Bircher Zeitung. No Zurcher. Thank you. 
It's too gothic for me. Anyway, your local newspaper. And, and there's a, a man with a moustache standing there with a, with a number plate in his hands, which reads ZH100. And I have to say, um, I do find this, you know, these personalised number plates a bit sad. Uh, Noel, I don't know about you, but the idea that you should pay more than €200,000 for a number plate um, seems absolutely extraordinary to me. But uh, somebody's done it, haven't they? Yes, they certainly have. Uh, And it's actually not a personalized plate. Mm. So uh, unlike the United States, for example, where people can buy personalized plates, um, in uh, Switzerland, all the plates are very standardized. And as the Neue Zürcher Zeitung, you said it quite well, uh, reports... um, These plates go up at auction. So license plates in Switzerland are very formulaic. They contain the initials of the Swiss canton where the car is registered, followed by numbers which are assigned sequentially. So essentially, the higher the number, that's how many cars there are on the road in that canton. Uh, So you might think that it would be interesting to have a bigger number because you would (laughs) show off that you have a newer car. But surprisingly, the opposite is true. The smaller the number, the more valuable the license plate. And newcomers to Switzerland are, are often surprised by this. Uh, in fact, when, uh, when we arrived here a few years ago, someone commented that it was so nice that our car had a relatively small numbered license plate. Um, so, uh, so, yes. So at, at an auction, a buyer offered the 226,000 Swiss francs for the license plate reading uh, ZH100. But that is not the most expensive license plate sold. Uh, that number was 2,000, <laughs> uh, sorry, 233,000 Swiss francs, which was paid for the license plate Z10. Uh, either way, the money is very much welcome in the coffers of Canton Zurich. I think it's not just the numbers which are small, Noel. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. That's Noel Salmi. Uh, this is The Globalist. Stay tuned. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. in the morning here in London on The Globalist with Monocle 24. And it's time to talk business now with Isabel Hamilton, senior reporter at The Daily Upside. Welcome to The Globalist, Isabel. Uh, Now, the exodus at Twitter is continuing. I've got to say, I I made $80 out of uh, Elon Musk. I suppose somebody had to make some money out of him. Uh, But uh, everybody else is going. It's not very pretty grim of your Twitter employee. Yeah, I mean, he already started cutting staff, but now we've had an exodus from the top level. So we've got the chief information security officer, 
chief privacy officer, chief compliance officer, and reportedly the head of safety and integrity have all gone, um, which means that the Federal Trade Commission have issued a bit of a warning because these are a lot of people who are in charge of mm. important things like maintaining privacy and security. And Twitter's actually already been on the hook for this in less trying times. Earlier this year, it had to pay the FTC $150 million over a privacy violation to do with how it handles phone numbers. It's it's extraordinary, really, when you consider that with, what, about 350 million users on Twitter, the, the whole thing has been thrown into chaos. And because of network effects, people are saying they want to leave, but, you know, where do you leave to? So a lot of people are sticking with it. Um, the stewardship, shall we say, does not look to be in particularly good shape. Yeah, Musk is firing from the hip. He's making lots of product changes and then sort of reversing them pretty much immediately, which would be the sort of biggest sign of the chaos that's reigning there at the minute. Um, he's also told employees that bankruptcy isn't entirely out of the question. He's uh, reversed... Is this, is this one of these sort of Chapter 11 bankruptcies? I, I think it's hard to know mm. when it's Musk. Musk also said that in 2018, Tesla came close to bankruptcy. Right. So he's got some form, but is I think when Tesla was having, it was called its year of production hell, it was, he wasn't sort of publicly reverse like pulling as many u-turns as he is right now and we've also got issues at amazon as well because because we've had meta sacking eleven thousand people twitter firing half the workforce amazon now is it's as if we're getting into well i suppose twitter wasn't part of that alphabet soup were they but you know all of the big tech companies now amazon saying it's in a broad cost cutting review weighing changes at alexa and other unprofitable units yeah so you're absolutely right twitter gets lumped in with the rest of big tech, but it's orders of magnitude smaller mm, yep. than things like Meta and Amazon. And yeah, Amazon is apparently conducting this cost-cutting review um, right from the top CEO, Andy Jassy. It's notable that Jassy was the head of Amazon Web Services, which is the Amazon's most... Bit. Yeah, massively profitable. A lot of people don't know about it because they associate Amazon with the delivery business, but it's cloud service is really the beast. Yep that covers all these other wings that actually aren't profitable, like Alexa. Um, The Wall Street Journal reported they saw a document that Alexa, uh, the devices unit that kind of governs Alexa, had an operating loss of more than $5 a year. I'm not surprised. I just bought an Alexa unit for €28. So, you know, you can't be making profits on those sort of things. Yeah, I mean, and also Amazon's... Like delivery business in Europe hasn't been a money spinner. They run a lot of departments on the basis that they want to become dominant, not that they want to be profitable Mm. in the near term. And uh, just a a quick one to finish with, uh, we've got British Airways. We've had Virgin already doing this, I think, but British Airways now saying its male pilots and cabin crew will be allowed to have piercings and wear makeup. Yeah, so BA is playing catch up a bit. Virgin has relaxed its rules rules a lot around how cabin crew and pilots can dress they're allowed to have tattoos now um ba is still a little bit more reserved there yeah they're, they're allowing male employees to wear makeup nail polish is allowed although not if it's black or neon colors um and man buns will now be allowed as a permissible permissible hairstyle for men but i think what kind of doesn't get mentioned in a lot of these 
stories about Virgin and now BA is that the airline industry is facing a staffing shortage. Oh. So as much as I, I, I'm sure there's lots of noble intentions behind it, I wonder if it's to try and attract more people. I think a smart business move there, Isabel. That's Isabel Hamilton. Thanks for joining us. Uh, you're still with The Globalist on Monocle 24. We're at 7.54 in the morning. And our final item, after months of anticipation and criticism, not of this item, but of The Crown, because it's back on Netflix. Series 5 sees the award-winning drama move on to the events of the 1990s and the British royal family's part in them. Our very own Laura Kramer hit the red carpet at the world premiere of the new series right here in London, and she buttonholed some of the main cast for us. The return of a hit TV series is usually a cause for celebration, but the mood is different for season five of The Crown. While the showrunners have always faced criticism for taking creative liberties with their interpretation of history, the death of Queen Elizabeth II sparked new calls to add disclaimers before episodes, which Netflix declined. Instead, they updated the series' description to highlight that it's a fictional dramatization inspired by real events. The House of Windsor should be binding the nation together, setting an example of idealized family life. It's a situation that cannot help but affect the stability of the country. But on the red carpet, the new cast defended the Crown's depiction of history and its portrayal of the royal family. Imelda Staunton, who plays the Queen, told me it's inevitable people will be more sensitive following her death. There's a different feeling now, of course, that she's died. And, and I think people are feeling sensitive, obviously, about that. But we finished six months ago. It's still as dignified and respectful as it's always been. And I hope that people take comfort from spending some more time with this family. You know, the first series was like a costume drama. It was so long ago. We are in 1992, and for some people, that is history. So it's creeping closer, but it isn't now. I mean, feelings are, are raw, probably still, and that is understandable. But we feel that too. None of us are going, oh, we shouldn't be doing it. I think, I think this is a real tribute, I hope, to, to our royal family. And while some have complained the crown is too fictional, others say it's too on the nose. They worry of its impact on the reign of King Charles due to how he's portrayed on the show. This season focuses on the breakdown of his marriage to Princess Diana. It even recreates the controversial interview she gave to the BBC. Do you think Mrs. Parker Bowles was a factor in the breakdown of your marriage? Well, there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded. <laughs> Elizabeth Debicki is the new Diana, and Dominic West, who plays Charles, says the resemblance is uncanny. It was terrifying. I mean, she was just perfect. I remember thinking, oh my God, she's got this in the bag already. And she was moving and talking and looking just like her character. And I was felt like I was sort of stumbling around in the dark and, and in front of a crew who'd, who'd watched two great casts play this show before. So it was really terrifying, but, but amazing. Oscar winner Jonathan Price told me he's been preparing to play Prince Philip for decades and he doesn't think the late royal would really approve. It was a challenge to humanize the man, the man that we all knew from the, from the newspapers as being a grumpy, irascible man who put his foot in it all the time. I've spent 75 years preparing for this role because it's the kind of role you bring a whole life's experience to. And then, you know, it's there in your DNA, should we say, and then you, uh, while you're acting, you forget about it. 
Do you think Prince Philip would have liked it in your performance? I, no, he'd have hated it. God, <laughs> no, he wouldn't like it at all. Despite the criticisms, there's no doubt fans of the royal drama will flock to the new series. Netflix says almost 75 million households have watched the show since it originally began. Well, that was Laura Kramer. We've just been having a discussion through the glass over whether we're crown watchers. I'm not. Steph's not. How about producer Reese? That's a sort of like come see, come saw kind of gesture we're getting from Reese. That's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Reese James, Laura Kramer and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs, our researchers, Lillian Fawcett and Emily Sands, and our studio manager, Steph Chungu. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. The briefing is live at midday in London. The Globalist returns at the same time on Monday, by which time I will be safely back in the Western Balkans. I'm Guy Delaunay. Thanks very much for tuning in. <laughs>